Slate Plus members get early access to our podcasts about Better Call Saul immediately following the broadcast on AMC. If you're not a Slate Plus member, try out this early access for our first three podcasts. If you like it, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash Saul Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Blue lights start a blank and those handcuffs click. You know who to call and you better call quick. Saul, Saul, you better call Saul. You'll fight for your rights when your back's to the wall. Stick it to the man, justice for all. You better call Saul. Hello and welcome to Slate's TV Club podcast about Better Call Saul, the new AMC drama. I'm June Thomas, editor of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ blog and a great fan of television. And I'm here with... Well, he says his name's Seth Stevenson, but what did it used to be when you were back in Illinois? Skippy McTeague. <laughs> Lovely skips. Yeah, that's what I went by. Yeah. Changed my name when I started working at Slade. June, I have to ask you yes. again. Yes. When you entered the studio, yes. did you ground yourself? I grounded myself. I'm wearing my space blanket because I see you brought your cell phone in. Oh, I, I couldn't find the mailbox. I was a little squiffy when I came in this morning. Fair enough. Yeah. Before we get to grounding and cell phones and space blankets, let's just recap just a smidgey tidgy. Uh, so what happened on this episode? <laughs> I guess what happened was that he survived. I suppose that's the summary of the summary. Important if the show would like to advance <laughs> to further episodes. Well, we started out as it was a continuation of last week's cliffhanger. Last that's week, right. the cliffhanger was a gun was pointed at uh, Jimmy's head. After a very significant moment, I think he was the one who knocked Yes, he, he knocked, indeed, <laughs> at Tuco's door, and Tuco pointed a gun at him and dragged him inside Tuco's house, and that was the last we saw uh, in last week's episode. This week, we see we're back inside Tuco's house. Tuco is very upset that these skateboard con artists have messed with his abuelita, and, mm-hmm. he, and Tuco has beat the living daylights out of the skateboarders, and now he's got... Well, let's face it. They did call his abuelita a beesnatch. Yeah, not so. cool Mm-mm. at all. Um, and not Frio. <laughs> and and then so now Tuco's got uh, Jimmy uh, in the chair. He's still pointing the gun at Jimmy, and he's like, "What's the deal? What's how? What's your connection to these skateboard guys?" And now Jimmy's going to try to talk his way out of this problem with Tuco. And and basically, a very large chunk of this episode is Jimmy trying to talk his way out of being murdered by Tuco, and in, you know along the way maybe try to save those skateboarders' hides as well. Right. Right. And then we see that when he survives and he kind of, I don't know, I guess he he really buckles down. Thanks in part to advice from Chuck, he really like just becomes a very diligent attorney. He's a, a defense attorney, uh, really trying to save uh, people with pretty poor cases. Um, and we also, I guess, see that the life of a public defender is not that different from a guy just begging for his own life out in the desert. Right. So after this long scene in the desert where Jimmy is negotiating for his to survive, uh, we then see a long montage of him in the courthouse working on behalf of his public defender clients, drinking a lot of coffee, a lot of negotiations with the prosecutors, earning his $700 per trial check, um, trying to get out of the parking lot without paying the $3 fee and failing, 
repeatedly. Um, and then finally, towards the end of the episode, he goes to his office in the in the back quarter of the nail salon right. or the Manny Petty salon. Um, he's, he checks his phone and there's no voicemail messages. He pushes his desk out of the way. He unfolds his, his sleeping cot. He has a shot of vodka and he's going to just go to sleep. And that is when Tuco's henchman arrives and knocks at the door, Tuco's unnamed henchman, right. and makes an offer to Jimmy to uh, get involved with some underworld dealings. And Jimmy says, oh, no, that's not my style. I don't do that thing. I'm not, I'm not a criminal. I'm just, uh, you know, a, I'm just a public defender. And Tuco's henchman says, well, here's my number for when you figure out that you're in the game. Right. And that's how the episode ends. Right. And that is, uh, I mean, that character of the henchman, who hopefully we'll find out what his actual name is at some point, um, was a really fantastic character because, um, you know, at some point he said, he claims that he saved Jimmy's life, which, you know, Jimmy saved Jimmy's life with his gift of the gab. But if henchman, if unnamed henchman hadn't uh, just kind of reminded Tuco that it would not be good for business to... To ice know, a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Who's actually shown respect, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and who very much played Tuco and pressed just the right buttons. Uh, this is a guy who... Uh, Jimmy really could work with and you know that phrase of once you realize you're in the game or once you figure out you're in the game does seem very appropriate because again all of these kind of similarities between what supposedly is the criminal world well what clearly is the criminal world and what's supposedly the world of justice it reminds me of that whole story where you know you say well you're acting like I'm a prostitute. Well, we know what you are. We're just haggling about the price. And in a way, that's exactly what's going on. Because Jimmy was happy to mess with the kettlemen when, or the kettlemans, I'm not quite sure if they're singular or plural, when he was kind of playing games to get them as a client. But when henchman with no name comes and suggests that they, you know, get their money, then suddenly that is... That's a line. Jimmy's figuring out where the lines are exactly. in their little boy. Well, before we go any further, why don't we listen to a clip from this week's show, which is Jimmy out in the desert negotiating with Tuco and Tuco's henchmen for his life. Okay, uh, Special Agent uh, Steele? Jeffrey A. Steele. Okay, Agent Steele, what business are we in? Business? You're investigating us, right? For what? What did we do? What do we sell? Drugs. What kind of drugs? Uh, it's Title 21, Schedule 2 through Schedule 5, including Part B. That's what we call them down at the Bureau. It, the task force is designated Operation Kingbreaker. Kingbreaker? So. That makes me the king! Woohoo! Can I? All right. The next words out of your mouth ought to be the truth. You understand? Mm-hmm. Who are you? So, June, that scene is out in the desert uh, with these criminals, uh, in, you know, kind of having a standoff with this, this incredibly bright, washed out uh, light. Um, and that reminded me a lot of Breaking Bad. So many scenes in Breaking Bad take place in that desert under the harsh glare of the sunlight with these criminals facing off against each other. And again, here in episode two, there were a lot of callbacks for me 
to Breaking Bad, a lot of Breaking Bad redolent moments. Even the cold open here, again, just like it was in the pilot episode, um, this time, uh, last time it was Cinnabons being being cooked up. This time it was the process of cutting tomatoes. There are all those Breaking Bad cold moments with someone doing some sort of procedural activity. And here it was again with Tuco cutting tomatoes. We see him cutting the tomatoes and then putting them in the pot. And, and then we that, and then we pull out and we see that that's what's going on. You know, at first we can't tell what it is. And that was very much like a cold open from Breaking Bad. And we had people being duct taped in garages, in suburban garages in Albuquerque, which felt very much like Breaking Bad. Um, we had a lot of going to commercial cliffhangers with someone having a gun pointed at their head, which felt a lot like that. So again, the the influence of Vince Gilligan and um, a lot of red meat for Breaking Bad, a lot of red meth, or, blue, <laughs> or rather blue meth for Breaking Bad fans, if yeah, you will. Yeah, you know, I'm sure many people have, have observed this over the year, but just the way you described that then just made me realize how many Breaking Bad cold opens involve food. I mean, especially the very, very key ones of... Um, Mrs. White or Skyler making, uh, you know, the the birthday breakfast for Walt and spelling out his uh, his name in ba- or his his birthday year in bacon and all those breakfasts. So yeah, that is really uh, very very redolent. And just two, I mean, scenes where people are begging for their life in the desert takes you back to to that other series. Um, but even just. The way that, you know, we know something about Tuco. We know he's a crazy mofo uh, in a way that maybe people who, if there are any people who are watching this show who haven't seen Breaking Bad, maybe they, well, it won't take them very long to realize it, of course. But it also really made me understand that Saul truly, truly is a great storyteller and also just a natural, he has a really fantastic instincts for survival in the way that even though Walt did survive longer than many people would have expected, you always, you, I never really believed in his ability to talk his way out. That was like his least developed skill. Whereas, you know, just the way that Saul or Jimmy, as he now is, knew that making himself an FBI agent would actually be useful because Tuco would be flattered. And if he said that he was working on Operation Kingbreaker, that would appeal completely to Tuco. And that is something that like Walter White would never have figured out. He was terrible at that kind of thing. Yeah, and that's Jimmy's. It's Jimmy is very quick on his feet. Mm-hmm. He's very uh, quick to realize what it is people need to hear and then to give it to them mm-hmm. and just to fill up the space with words so that whatever it was they were about to do, he's just going to keep talking to delay it and delay it and delay it. And that it's sort of his superpower is that in the way that Walter White's superpower is maybe his chemical expertise, Absolutely. which he would use to get, you know, not only to make the meth, but sometimes to get out of hairy situations by creating improvisatory sort of MacGyver-like mm-hmm. bombs or something. Um, Saul slash Jimmy's gift his one real superpower is that gift of gab and he's going to use it. And we saw that out in the desert where he talks and talks and talks and talks. And this show is so full of monologues. And, uh, and we saw actually, I think um, Jimmy kind of realize that that was his superpower. He, you know, he, there's a moment where he's talked, the skateboarders are, the skateboarders are going to be murdered out in the desert. Yeah. It looks pretty clear. They're going yeah. to be turned inside out with a, with a dagger. Their red hair will never turn gray. 
Oh, those poor skateboarders. And he talks them down. He negotiates. You know, first it's going to be um, they're going to be murdered. Then it's going to be they're, they're going to have both legs, legs broken. Are their tongues cut out? Tongues cut out, Columbia necktie. Then then he talks it down to uh, one broken leg per skateboarder, which is, quote, tough but fair, he tells Tuco. He sort of flatters Tuco's um, you know, kingly yeah. aspects by saying you're going to be tough but fair. One broken leg per skateboarder is the right call. That's what you should do. And the skateboarder says, "Oh, you're a terrible lawyer because you we you got our legs broken." And and Jimmy says, uh, "Less to the skateboarder than to himself." Mm-hmm. He says to himself, "I'm a great lawyer." He's, and he's sort of realizing yeah. for the first time what uh, an ability he has to talk people around to his way to his point of view. And he's not wrong. He really did talk his way out of those guys going from a life sentence or a death sentence, in fact, to six months. As he, you know, I guess they'll be back on their feet in six months. I don't know if they'll be doing more slip and falls. But yeah, uh, yeah he really, he is a great advocate. And it seems like the show is setting itself up to be, you, you come to watch this show to see how is Jimmy going to talk himself out of something this week? Or how is Jimmy going to talk somebody else into something this week? And how is he going to use his amazing gift of gab to alter the course of events. And I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that is what we're going to see. The same it's, way that Columbo is going to use his deductive powers or Walter White's going to use his expertise with chemistry and his um, cold black heart. Yeah. <laughs> that this, is, this is what we're going to turn in to see Jimmy do. Yes, undoubtedly. One of the things that we saw Jimmy do was a little bit lose his temper, or not lose his temper, just maybe lose his equanimity with Chuck. He's frustrated with Chuck, which, as we said in last week's episode of the TV Club, we've not been told exactly what their relationship is. They share a last name, uh, so some family connection, and Jimmy is clearly making sacrifices for Chuck, not only in turning down paychecks, but he's essentially subsidizing him. I mean, uh, the way that Jimmy is living is you know, unthinkably uh, poor, and he doesn't need to be quite so down and out, except for the fact that he's heavily subsidizing Chuck. Yeah, Jimmy's living this really squalid life. And yeah, I I sort of, I'm going on the assumption that they're brothers. It seems like they might be brothers. They don't, So we've, we, Michael McKeon plays mm. Chuck, of course. He was uh, from one of Lenny and Squiggy. I can't remember. He was Lenny, right? Not Or was he Squiggy? Either way. And then he was in Spinal Tap. Right. Um, and here he is again, and they actually have a bit of a physical resemblance. It was it was it's canny casting to make yes. them uh, related in some way because they do look sort of alike. And so, what I think what we've been given to understand about Chuck, at least I'm, I'm making some assumptions mm-hmm. here, or sort of filling in the uh, filling in the uh, connecting the dots here, is that he was a partner at this high powered law firm, a name partner, a name partner, uh, pulling down bank, mm-hmm. and. He's gone a little nuts, I think, is what we're given to believe. And he's living in this off-the-grid house, and he's wrapping himself in space blankets, and he's borrowing cell phones from the premises, and there's no electricity, and he's using a little cooler full of ice to keep food cold. And he's just – and he's typing things up and having them translated into Finnish. He's clearly a very intelligent man, but he's gone off the deep end a bit, and it's it's preventing him from earning any money. And Jimmy is kind of his caretaker in a way. Yeah. And – yeah, Jimmy is really sacrificing for him. Jimmy is taking care of him. And, and as we saw last episode, he's fighting for Chuck to get what he deserves, to to get a payday that is commensurate with what he has invested and what he is, you know, deserves from that firm. And they are taking advantage of him. Nevertheless, Chuck seems to be siding with the law firm. So when Howard Hamlin the sort of, you know, he's actually a blonde guy who's clean shaven, but, you know, with the mustache twirling bad guy, 
uh, lawyer comes over apparently and visits Chuck. Chuck gives in to Howard's demand that Jimmy should change the name of his law firm, which no one currently would think had any connection with Hamlin Hamlin McGill, just because McGill, his name, is in the you know the name of the company, and he says that he should do it, and he seems to be siding with this faceless law company that is taking terrible advantage of him over Jimmy. Yeah, and Chuck, we it's, we're we're given to think that Chuck is this very sweet guy. I mean, for having been a corporate lawyer, apparently mm-hmm. he's a pretty soft yeah. guy, and yeah. people are steamrolling right over him. And he seems like this sweet, smart guy who's. Um, who can be taken advantage of, and, and it's Jimmy's role to protect him and shield him and be the, the hard edge that's not going to just give in and is going to fight for, I think it was $17 million exactly. that, that Jimmy had claimed he was owed as his as, as a partner of this law firm. Instead, they're trying to give him checks, you know, these measly little checks every week to try to buy him out. Um, you know, and we mentioned how Vince Gilligan's fingerprints uh, were all over these first two episodes of Better Call Saul and how there are so many moments that harken back to Breaking Bad. And I felt like the scenes in Chuck's house uh, with the fear of the cell phone signals and electrical impulses and the space blankets, this reminds me a lot of X-Files, which is another Vince Gilligan show from before Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. Just this weird fringy subculture of people who are afraid of these mainstream things that we all think are normal. And and, um, we're going to dive into that world of people who are afraid of of cell phone signals. Yeah, and exactly. And there's something, too, that's very specific. Maybe it's just me, but there's some very specific uh, thrill or, or, I don't know, sense that you get from feature phones. You know, those old flip phones, somehow that not only is redolent of sort of another decade, uh, you know, the pre-2007 era. Uh, but it's it's a lovely moment because you don't, you have cell phones so you can reach people and you can kind of, you know, connect with, with them when they're, even when they're being dragged by a, you know, a, a truck down the, down the street. So you, you're beyond that out of contact moment that was, you know, a big plot point of in many, many shows for many, many years but you're still not in the sort of constant connectivity that we have today. Yeah, so we'll be able to talk to each other wherever we are, but we might not be able to look up the you know <laughs> things on our smartphones and just solve right. all problems and answer all questions with Google at all times. So that may be a useful because I you know we see TV shows having to deal with this yeah. idea that people can always be reached and can figure out anything on their phones, and it creates a lot of obstacles sometimes really for does. narrative tension. And so that that might be an arrow in this show's quiver: the fact that they can use those flip phones instead of smartphones. Um, But let's, you know, we should talk about Bob Odenkirk, who plays Jimmy McGill slash Saul, um, and is in basically every scene of this show, as far as I can tell. I mean, we occasionally were at Tuco's house without him, I guess, in these first two episodes, but basically he's in every scene, and he is giving monologue after monologue. He's talking and talking and talking. What do you think, Jude? How how did you feel about Bob Odenkirk before, and and how do you think he's holding up the show so far? You know, I have to, no doubt... uh be castigated for this, but I'm, you know, not hugely familiar with his work. Of course, I know him from Breaking Bad, saw him in Fargo, which I didn't like at all. I thought he was fine, but I didn't like the show. But I know he has a long history, not only as a comedian, but also in kind of comedic roles and in in, in sketch comedies and so on. But that's just not part of my, uh, I don't know that material. Um, and I, again, you know, I was worried how a guy who had essentially been light relief in a heavy show was going to carry a show, but he is a really, really good actor. I mean, 
it's very, very difficult to be the... He is this show right now. And that is an immensely difficult role. And he is carrying it off really well. I mean, I believe that he... I not only believe in his oratory, but I believe that he is making it up on the spur of the moment. And that is an amazing acting job. Yeah, I go back to Mr. Show, the old HBO show that was by, it was Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. And they <laughs> would do this sketch comedy. And it was hilarious. If you haven't ever watched it, I really recommend it. You go back and watch. There are some absolutely just have you in stitches uh. pieces of sketch comedy in there. And Bob Odenkirk, he's always had a bit of this used car salesman sketchiness to him that he mm-hmm. could pull out. And that's that's definitely one of his big comedic weapons. And that's why I think he was cast as Saul in Breaking Bad and why he's carrying this show with that same used car salesman <laughs> oiliness. But he also, I sort of compare him to someone like uh, a Phil Hartman or a Will Ferrell who can, in, in the realm of sketch comedy, they can be a lot of things. They can be the ballast in a lot of scenes. They can kind of be the... Uh, Hetero white old the hetero white guy who kind of is the ballast the the the, the voice of authority in a scene and he can do that um, but he can also be um, wacky clown. he can yeah. be a clown and uh, another way he's like um, Phil Hartman in, in some ways is that Phil Hartman also had that gift of gab where he could just do these long monologue runs and not miss a word and never stumble and it was just so smoothly delivered and we've seen that over and over in this show where Bob Odenkirk can do these long long stretches of dialogue with all sorts of words coming in and out of um, you know and talking himself in circles and never skip a beat never stumble on his words and it just comes out so smoothly and that does help create that illusion that he's thinking it up on the spot and one of the things that's often difficult in shows like this is providing sympathy or making the audience feel sympathy for the lead character if they are a criminal, if they're drug dealers, you know, or if they are lawyers who are taking advantage of people. And right now, my sympathy is definitely with Jimmy because it seems like he is doing his best for people. And yes, he knows how to kind of, you know, he knows the criminal ways and he maybe used to even do them, but he's kind of, he's, he's bettered himself. He's turned himself around. Uh, but he can also still make just jokes. I mean, there was a, when he was trying to prove to Tuco and co that he was a lawyer, you know, there was some line like, I'm a lawyer, ask me anything. Well, not about contract law, yeah. which was absolutely thrown away. But if he couldn't deliver that, that would have been, it would have kind of sunk the whole show. These moments are actually, some of them are very, very important right now, especially when we're trying to figure out our response to the show. And I'm really impressed with him. Yeah. Well, so this, again, this episode, I felt at times moved a little slow. We were out in the desert for a long time. We had a very long montage of him in the courthouse with his public defender clients. It's showtime. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the episode, well, two things happen, I think, that are going to propel the show f- forward uh, to some extent. One is where I think we see now how he's going to become Saul Goodman because mm-hmm. he has to, he's going to have to change the name of the firm and that's going to cause him to pick a new name. And that's how he's going to become Saul. And then finally, on this podcast, we can just call him Saul and not yes, have to worry finally. about calling him Jimmy and explaining that every time. But in the last three minutes of this second episode, that's when Tuco's henchman comes and says... Let's go after these embezzlers. You know, you're going to figure out that you're in the game. And now we see that that Saul slash Jimmy is going to start being involved with the underworld. And this is going to kick the show into gear, I think. I agree. And uh, it will be interesting to see what that guy's name is. 
<laughs> it will be interesting. That's a, it's a true mystery, part of the puzzle, <laughs> part of Vince Gilligan's um, big puzzle. Well, June, I am looking forward to watching more episodes of Better Call Saul and discussing them with you here, uh, wrapped in my space blanket. Ditto. Will you be grinded? Always. Shopping at the Walmart short, just a couple of beans. There's a George Foreman grill down the back of your blue jeans. They caught you at the checkout, the blue lights blink, only one got a call, because the others all stink. Better call Saul, better call Saul, better call Saul. Thank you for listening to this Slate TV Club podcast. Join us next time when we'll talk about Better Call Saul Episode 3. And check out our other recent TV podcasts about Downton Abbey and the Americans. Just go to iTunes and search for Slate TV Club. And we'd like to hear from you. If you have thoughts about Better Call Saul, if there's something you'd like us to address, please email us at podcasts at slate.com. And we'll take a look at what you have to say. And maybe we can uh, answer some of your questions or address some of your concerns. Our producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Bye, June. Bye, Seth. Hello, I'm Felix Salmon. And this week on Slate Money, we're going to talk about net neutrality, which is not boring. It's actually kind of interesting. So tune in and you'll get a free burger if you do so. Disclaimer, you won't actually get a free burger, but we will tell you all about Shake Shack, which is more healthy than eating one. Find us at slate.com slash slate money.